Amen, amen. Thank you, worship team and all the people who have led us together. It's a, it's a real blessing to have spiritually mature leadership like we have in the worship team and in this church, and I'm so thankful for it to shape this community. So my name's Tom Mitchell, and I'm so excited to be with you this morning and bring you a word from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, as Noel said, we're continuing a sermon series entitled Crosswise, where we're seeking to look at and understand all the different biblical perspectives regarding Christ's death on the cross. And last week and this week, we're getting an insider's view because we're getting the words of Jesus himself, his own description of what his death means. And today, we're looking at a passage from the Gospel of Matthew, and that's very timely because if you're following along with our New Testament challenge, this passage is actually part of the scheduled reading for tomorrow. And so you're going to get a sneak peek at that. And also, this passage captures a scene from the Last Supper. And we're taking communion today, so that's another nice connection. So hear now these words from Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread And after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now this passage may be familiar to some of you who have heard it because it's also often used to introduce communion. But it's packed with power and symbolism. And so we're going to look backward at what it meant to those disciples who were preparing to eat a meal with Jesus And then we're going to look forward to see what it means for us disciples as we prepare to eat a meal with Jesus. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord God, you alone are the word and you alone have the words of eternal life. We need your word, Lord. Speak to us as we're gathered here this morning and speak through us as we're scattered in the world this week. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Now this last supper, this nighttime meal, is the end of a long journey for Jesus. In his three-year ministry, Jesus and his disciples, they've traveled all over Israel. But they've always been pointed towards Jerusalem and ultimately pointed towards the cross. So three times earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, three times Jesus has told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem where he will suffer and die and rise again. And now, they're here. And on this night, they've gathered for a Passover meal. For centuries, the Israelites have taken the meal to get together as an act of remembrance 
for when God delivered the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. And the meal consists of bread and wine and lamb, and each element is invested with deep symbolism. But this night, this meal is different. Because Jesus is going to reinterpret those symbols, or better yet, he's going to reveal what those symbols ultimately point to. And that last meal before the redemption of Israel is going to now become the last meal before the redemption of the world. But before we dig into what Jesus was saying about his own death, it's important to understand some of the terms he's using, some of the concepts that he's circling around. For example, in this passage, he invokes the blood of the covenant, which is a term that's loaded with meaning. And I think two things are in view here. First, when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, God sent Pharaoh to Moses with a very simple message. Let my people go so that they may worship me. But Pharaoh, as you know, repeatedly refused. And so God loosed plague after plague upon the land of Egypt, demonstrating that God stands over against oppressive power, against violent subjugation, against any way of life that demeans and destroys people. And as a final measure of judgment in Exodus 12, God promises a final, a final plague that will kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt, human or animal. But for the Israelites, he instructs them to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the sacrifice and wipe it on the doorposts and the threshold. And if they will do that, the angel of death will pass over them. So we see early on that sacrificial blood means freedom and covering from death. And we also hear in Jesus' words a reference to the covenant that God made with the Israelites in the wilderness at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. And there, God claimed the Israelites as his treasured possession. And the Israelites pledged to be faithful to God and to follow the law. They were now in relational union. God would lead and they would follow. The righteous and holy God would shape a righteous and holy people to reflect the glory of God's goodness to the whole world. And that covenant was sealed when Moses sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the people. Sacrificial blood seals the covenant. But that covenant, it didn't go so well. Only hours after the covenant is made, when Moses and Aaron and the other leaders go up to the mountain to put their faces before God, only hours after that, they come down and the Israelites have already broken the covenant. They fashioned an idol and bowed down before a golden calf and worshipped it. They had committed covenant-breaking sin, which carries with it grave consequences. And we've seen those consequences throughout the entire Bible. In fact, in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, the sin of Adam and Eve results in ruptured relationship and alienation from God. 
and separated from the source of life, they become subject to death. And so we see the beginning of another pattern. Sin, alienation from God, and death. And over the centuries, this reality is repeatedly displayed in the life of Egypt. They're caught in a cycle of sin, rebelling against their covenant promises. They turn away from God and worship idols. They seek earthly alliances instead of the protection that comes from the presence of God. And ultimately, as judgment, the Babylonians invade. They demolish the temple and ravage the land and carry the Israelites off into captivity. And as Ezekiel 37 tells us, it is the death of the nation of Israel. Sin, alienation, bondage, and death. But that's not only Israel's story. That's our story. Look at the mess we've made of our world. Wars and poverty and hunger and hate and racial injustice and school shootings. And we turn away from God and worship modern idols like power and money and possessions. Modern people don't use the language of covenant, but we see all around us what it means to be alienated from God and in bondage to sin. We use different language for it, but we acknowledge it all the same. We talk about unhealthy habits, messed up ways of thinking, unjust and destructive social systems, damaging family patterns that are passed down from generation to generation, or addictions, addictions to things like alcohol or porn or shopping. And we acknowledge these things, the reality of them, even as we speak in our normal lives, even as we don't really know that we're doing it. We say things like, there's something wrong with the world. And sometimes we may even whisper to ourselves, that's something that's wrong with the world. That's got a hold of me, too. And we ask ourselves, how did I get myself in this same mess Again, why am I so anxious or so angry all the time? Why do I overspend or overeat or overreact? Why do I continue to do the things that destroy my life, destroy my family, and destroy my future? Because for the Israelites and us, the consequences of sin are the same. Alienation from God, bondage, and death. And the Apostle Paul speaks for all of us when he says, I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And that's the question, really. Isn't it down deep? That's the question. Because we know whatever's got a hold of us, we can't loose that ourselves. Who will rescue us? 
And that brings us all the way back to Jesus and the Last Supper. Because Jesus came to the earth to deal with sin and its consequences. It's an essential part of his name and his mission. When his birth was announced in Matthew 1, the angel tells his father Joseph, name him Jesus because he will save his people from sin. And now that time has come. So at the meal, Jesus takes the Passover bread. Deuteronomy 16 calls it the bread of affliction because its bitter flavor represents the toil and the suffering that the Israelites had experienced in slavery and that they experienced in their wilderness wanderings on the way to the promised land. But now, but now Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this this is my body. And he is, in effect, he is saying, this is the bread of my affliction, my pain, my toil, that I'm going to suffer to bring you out of slavery. That bread was about freedom from Pharaoh. This bread is about freedom from sin and from death. And then Jesus takes the cup and he holds it up and he says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And here he's saying something cosmic that's anchored in the story of creation, in the story of Israel, and in the story of all humanity. Jesus is saying that he is the sacrificial Passover lamb that covers us from judgment. Jesus is saying that as Israel's Messiah, he is faithfully taking upon himself the burden of all of Israel's covenant breaking. And as, and as the Son of Man, he is taking upon himself all the burden of humanity's sin. Jesus is saying that he's making a new covenant of grace for the forgiveness of sins, and he's going to seal that covenant with his very own sacrificial blood. And so at the next day, at the cross, Jesus absorbs in his own body all the consequences of our covenant breaking and sin. When Jesus is bound to the cross with those nails, he's absorbing our bondage to sin when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's absorbing all of our alienation from God. And when Christ groans from the cross, it is finished. And he breathes his last gasping breath. He absorbs our ultimate death. By his death, we are forgiven. That is astonishing, isn't it? It's astonishing. Sacrificial love is always astonishing. And it's so shocking that our minds wonder, well, why did, why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't, couldn't God just forgive us? 
And even as we ask that question, part of us knows it just couldn't work like that. Because we know in our own experience, wherever there's sin, wherever there is injustice or wrongdoing or offense or damage or hurt, somebody, somebody always pays the cost. Somebody always bears the pain. Because forgiveness means rather than seeking vengeance or retribution and making you pay and making you hurt, forgiveness means that I absorb the penalty. I take the pain. I pay the debt. Forgiveness always means suffering. And perhaps ultimate forgiveness demands ultimate suffering. We don't know the answer to every single one of those questions, but we know that if we believe that Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, then the crucifixion, that doesn't end our forgiveness story. It starts it. Because when we proclaim Jesus as the forgiver of our sins, we're not merely affirming his identity, we're choosing our identity as well. As it has been said, what has been done for us must be done by us. Simply put, Christ calls his followers to be forgivers. Forgiveness is part of the glorious witness that we're called to make of God's goodness. That we are to reflect to the world. And it's so essential that God instructed us to practice it and pray it every single day. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, and he models a very simple daily prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And maybe you've said it so many times in your life that you've just stopped listening to the words. But they're revolutionary. Here's what he insists that we say. Forgive us our trespasses or our debts or our sins as we forgive those who trespassed against us. That's remarkable. Jesus, the Savior and forgiver of our sins, instructs us to pray that God would forgive us in the manner and the measure that we forgive other people. So in effect, he's saying, when you hold the sins of other people against them, you're praying, God, hold my sins against me. Because it's an organic relationship. Forgiven people forgive people. And perhaps the Apostle Paul says it simply in the best. He says, forgive each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So when we trust the loving sacrifice of Christ on the cross, our sins are forgiven. Amen. And when we forgive the sins of others against us, we display the love of Christ to a hurting world. We proclaim the goodness of God to a listening world. And we reflect the glory of God to a watching world. And you may hear all that and still have so many questions. You may be thinking, 
how could somebody's death 2,000 years ago deal with my sin now? And what does that have to do with my burdens and my slavery and my alienation? And what about the evil that still exists in the world? And what about all the terrible things that the church has done? And those are all legitimate questions. They're all good questions. But pastor and author Fleming Rutledge does a, such a good job of framing those questions and responding to them. She says, to such questions, we are not given an answer. We are simply given the Son of God. But if you trust the forgiveness of sins that Jesus accomplished on the cross, you won't know the answer to every question, but you will know this, that it is your sin and not somebody else's that was taken away by his sacrifice. It is you who is washed in the blood of the Lamb. It is you who have been snatched back from the very brink of the grave by the one who has provided his own Lamb as a substitute. It is you who have heard how God has made the great exchange becoming an offering for sin that you might receive new life and new righteousness in Him. Behold, the Lamb of God who died for the forgiveness of sins.